Empower Radio presents Out of the Fog. Join intuitive guide and spiritual teacher Karen Hager for lively, positive conversation with lightworkers, healers, and dynamic wisdom keepers. Get ready for inspiration and connection. This is Out of the Fog on Empower Radio. Here's your host, Karen Hager. Hello and welcome to Out of the Fog. I'm Karen Hager. Each week at this time, we gather for spiritual conversation and enlightening guests, and I'm glad you're here. Time and distance are no barrier to energy, and that means no matter when you're listening, no matter how you found us, you're here for a reason. And I hope something in the next hour lights you up and helps you move forward. So how's your connection to nature? Whether you live in the city or you live in the country or somewhere in between like I do, you might feel like we have done so much to alter our environment, so much to kind of make things artificial that maybe we're not in step with natural rhythms anymore. My guest today is author and artist Lupa. She's here to talk about nature spirituality, about working with totems, and about her belief that if we are to reverse the damage that we've done as a species. We must rebuild our connection to the natural world. Are you ready to meet her? As a kid, Lupa spent all her free time outdoors, turning over rocks, catching garter snakes, and learning the names of trees. Today, she's a neo-shaman, artist, and sustainability geek. She's been working with animal magic in various forms since the 1990s and has developed a self-created and spirit-directed neo-shamanic path. Lupa has a master's degree in counseling psychology with an emphasis on eco-psychology. Her latest book is Nature Spirituality from the Ground Up. Lupa lives and creates in Portland, Oregon. You can visit her online at thegreenwolf.com. Lupa, welcome to Out of the Fog. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Oh, wonderful. No, I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're here. Maybe, let's start maybe by letting me ask you what it is that you mean when you say nature and natural. What is that? So when most people talk about nature, they mean anything that isn't human, you know? So they're talking about other species of animals, talking about plants. A lot of times they're talking about, you know, rural wilderness areas or gardens, you know, anything that's not strictly, uh, you know, human dominated. And it's, it's understandable that people would do that because we do live for the most part in such human centered uh, settings that we feel a deep need to be connected to something that's not all about us. Um, we are the product of, you know, millions of years of evolution and, uh, you know, we evolved in big open spaces, just like all the other animals. And when we deprive ourselves of that, it really has a significantly negative effect on both our psyche and on a, on a bigger scale, our societies. So that's what most people think of as nature. You know, they, they, they don't include us because they're so overwhelmed by us that they need something different. Um, when I talk about nature personally, I include humans. Um, we are homo sapiens sapiens. We are the human ape. Um, everything we do 
is to one degree or another natural. It's an extension of some natural instinct or, uh, you know, something that we evolved as a species. You know, all these things that we've created through our technology, that's a combination of our intense curiosity, uh, our tool-using skills, and our uh, social abilities all wrapped up into one. So I don't really believe in artificial or unnatural there's just varying degrees of nature and human nature. What do you think our disconnection from that is costing us? Because I know that I don't feel often tapped into that. When you say nature, I think, oh, I should go look at a tree. And I've mm-hmm. mi- I'm missing that deeper connection that you're talking about. What does it cost us not to be connected? Um, well, from a psychological background, uh, the field of eco-psychology, which is the psychology of how we relate to the rest of nature, um, we have a lot of negative physiological effects. We, um, you know, we tend towards more health problems. We're more stressed. Um, you know, obviously a lot of us aren't getting as much exercise as our ancestors did because we're more sedentary and we're not working outdoors. Um, So just on a purely physical level, it's causing damage. But on a psychological level, um, we are really stressed and anxious and there's a certain, there's a certain pressure that being packed into overly human-dominated places has on us. And I think a lot of times we don't recognize that that pressure is there uh, until it's removed, you know, until we find ourselves in a more wilderness area. We didn't know it was there because it's, it's, it's our baseline. It's what we're used to. And yet we are experiencing this every single day, and it is having marked uh, effects both on our body and our psyche. And so one of the goals of eco-psychology and eco-therapy, which is the, the practical end of it, is to not just get people outside and get them spending more time in, in the company of non-human animals and plants and so forth, but also to get us to re- to be able to recognize the negative effects that that di- that disconnection has had on us and to be able to treat it in the same way we would treat any other uh, health issue that's fascinating how how through that connection with nature then can you treat health issues um well just by going outside um you know, maybe to a park or to, you know, a hiking trail or even, you know, um, out here in Portland, I worked, uh, I worked for Intel for uh, a little while. And even though I worked in this big, you know, building full of cubes outside, there was a wetland that had been preserved right in the middle of the Intel campus. 
And so sometimes I'd go out there. So, you don't, like I said, you don't have to have this big wilderness area. It can just be a little bit of, you know, a little pond or something, um, park, whatever. Anyway, when we go to these places, when we give ourselves something to look at that isn't just, you know, square rooms and screens and other humans and so forth, um, we experience certain physiological effects. We relax, our blood pressure goes down, our heart rate goes down, our breathing, you know, settles out some. Um, The various stress chemicals that, you know, tell us to be stressed, that, you know, that are response to stress, those, uh, you know, lower in quantity and we experience more of the sort of brain and body chemicals that, uh, signal restfulness and relaxation and safety. And, um, you know, from a, from a, a psychological perspective, uh, there's a wonderful concept um, from uh, a couple of researchers, Kaplan and Kaplan, and it's called soft fascination. And what soft fascination is, is... So you know how when you're in the middle of a city and you're maybe driving down the road and it's a busy road and there's a bunch of other cars and you're looking out for pedestrians and you're trying to remember how to get to the place where you're going and, you know, there's loud music going on in your on in your radio, but you have to keep both your hands on the wheel so you can't turn the volume down. And maybe you've got a kid in the back seat screaming. It's just all this stuff is just yanking your attention right at it. And that's exhausting. A 15-minute drive can just feel like, you know, you just ran three, a, a, a three-hour marathon. Hmm. It's exhausting. So that's, that's one form of focus that we all too often have to deal with. What soft fascination is, is when we get out of that car and we go walk down by the river or we go to the park or we sit on a bench by a garden um, you know, or, or you know, look outside the window at a few trees, our attention is allowed to flow more organically. You know, it's not like getting wrenched back and forth by you know, a billboard screaming for your attention or a car that's about to hit you. You can pay attention to whatever you want or to nothing at all. You can just let your mind drift. And evolutionarily speaking, we did not spend the bulk of our time each day in heightened awareness. Um, You know, yes, we'd be cautious, especially back when we were still rather small apes that could be eaten by leopards and so forth. But it wasn't like constantly having that leopard leaping on you and having to deal with it right now or else you're going to die. What we have to deal with now, especially in a very busy uh, setting, is the equivalent of leopards leaping out at us all the time whether that's making sure that, that car doesn't hit us or making sure that, um, you know, pay attention to this thing, pay attention to this thing, pay attention to this thing. And no wonder we're so stressed. We're just not equipped to deal with that much stress, that much hard attention 
all day, every day. So when we get outside and we let that soft fascination happen, it lets us relax. It lets us get back to um, what we're supposed to be like most of the time in our lives. Mm. It's a return to a return to center. I love that idea of soft fascination of a different way of focus. I believe strongly that 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 pull that we have toward the divine, the pull that mm-hmm. we have in this case to that reconnection with nature, that part of that divine pull is an invitation to a different kind of attention to see differently and to allow ourselves to be seen differently. And so as we start that reconnection with nature, Lupa, how do we do it without the overpowering guilt that comes from all of the ways that we might have done something wrong or we're not doing enough or we're not vegan enough or we're not carnivorous enough or we're not, I don't know, hemp enough or we're not whatever. What are some ways we can start to reconnect without that weird impediment that we put in front of ourselves? Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really easy. Um there is a tendency because we have spent so much time um, because we've spent so much time being uh, you know destructive towards the the land and the beings that live on the land, um, I think we've overreacted by wanting to shove ourselves away. Mm. Um, in, in, in an attempt to try and protect what's left. But that's to our detriment. There's, there's a wonderful quote that I'm going to share from you. Uh, it's from a writer named Richard Nelson. And uh, he's a nature writer, among others. And the quote is, it's dangerous to think of ourselves as loathsome creatures or as perversions in the natural world. We need to see ourselves as having a rightful place. We take pictures of all kinds of natural scenes, and often we try to avoid having a human being in them. In our society, we force ourselves into a greater and greater distance from the natural world by creating parks and wilderness areas where our only role is to go in and look. We lavish tremendous concern and care on scenery, but we ignore the ravaging of environments from which our lives are drawn. Mm. And what he's saying there is we can't protect, quote-unquote, nature, whatever you want to call nature, by distancing ourselves from it. Because, yeah, we can, sure, we can, we can make a wilderness area, we can make it illegal to log there and mine there and so forth and, and try to protect wildlife uh, migration routes and so forth. But we also need the opportunity to connect with those places, to make them personal. Because the more personally we feel about nature, the closer we feel to it. You know, the, the closer, the better you know someone or something, the more you want to protect it. So there's that end of it. But there's also the fact that we then kind of give up on the rest of nature. We give up on the nature that's in the middle of the city. We give up on the nature that has been turned into suburbs with identical green lawns full of grass and nothing else. 
um, we need to be able to insert ourselves back into nature. Now, you mentioned something about the guilt people feel uh, about that destruction that we've done. And as far as I'm concerned, guilt is, for the most part, a pretty useless and ineffective emotion, especially beyond the first little pang of, wow, I did something wrong, or I hurt something, or I hurt someone. You you can have that initial realization, but after that, guilt just becomes something to castigate yourself with, and that's no good. That doesn't do anything. So I kind of look at, you know, there, there are people who say, oh, I don't feel that I could be an environmentalist because, you know, I still have to drive a car or I still need to use plastic bags for something or, or whatever, or I can't, I can't garden. Uh, there's always going to be somebody who's greener than now. <laughs> and, um, you know, start where you're at. Making any effort is better than making no effort at all. I kind of look at it as going to the gym, you know, yeah, sure, maybe you're out of shape because you haven't exercised much since high school and you're really embarrassed because you're surrounded by all these people who are in fantastic condition um, and maybe you just don't want to go back because you feel like you're not as good as they are. But the thing is, you know what? You showed up. You showed up. You are there. You're doing better than the person who's still sitting on the couch. Mm-hmm. And environmentally, you're doing better than the person who just kind of gave up and said, I can't do this at all. So it's a really, it's really, really important for us to be able to forgive ourselves for everything leading up to this point so that from this point onward, we can do better. Every single moment, every single heartbeat, every single breath is an opportunity to make a choice to do better. And accept that sometimes, yeah, you're going to screw up. It's okay. Everybody does it. You just do the best that you can and don't let your mistakes get in the way of you striving for successes. I could not agree with that more. I believe there's all with every breath, you're making a choice, either affirming a choice or making a new choice. And when you screw it up, there's always another breath. Mm -hmm. And even I believe even after we're not drawing physical breath, that there's always another breath. One Mm -hmm. of the interesting things about this book about nature, spirituality from the ground up is the idea of using the practice of totemism, of connecting with totems as a kind of a bridge between this disconnected place and a more personal, deeper connection to nature. And I wonder if you can kind of start to walk us over that bridge a little bit, just maybe by starting to say what, what a totem is. So, um, first I want to get a couple definitions out of the way. Um, I've been working with animal and other totems for about tw- almost 20 years now. It says me about 20 years. Anyway, um, and what I mean by a totem is it's an archetypal being that embodies all of the qualities of a given species. Um, so, for example, 
you know, my name Lupa is is deliberate. Um, one, the very first totem that I worked with when I was very, very young is a uh, gray wolf. And when I talk about the totem gray wolf, I'm not just talking about an individual spirit. I'm talking about an archetypal being that embodies all the qualities of all gray wolves that have ever existed all the relationships that they have with other beings in their environment, all of their behaviors, and all of the stories and lore and things that we talk about with wolves. That's part of that relationship. And so it's a lot bigger than one big spirit, than just one spirit. And every single species of animal, plant, fungus, uh, microbe, whatever, they all have their own totems. Now, I'm not, um, I'm not Native American or otherwise indigenous. I am a white girl from the Midwest, and my path is primarily self-taught. Um, it's basically, when you read my books, you're basically reading what I have brought together over two decades of reading and practicing and trial and error and working directly with these beings. Um, so this is not, you know, people often associate totemism just with Native American cultures, but cultures worldwide have had similar beings that they work with. But I am, I am a product of sort of the mainstream American culture. Um, and that's what I have to work with. I'm not trying to go back to my European ancestors because I'm not, I'm not German. I'm not French. I'm not Czech. I am American. And that is, you know, that's the culture that I, that I'm working with and, and trying to, trying to improve, honestly. Um, I think that's one of the biggest uh, misconceptions people have, and I have to correct people a fair bit about that. And I, I, you know, I have to because I don't want people getting the wrong idea. You know, if people want to learn something from an indigenous community, that's fine. I just can't do that. I can't. I can't teach them that. I have to, you know, refer them on to somebody else who can help. You know. Mm-hmm. There's a way in which that. <clears throat> There's a way in which sometimes there's a misappropriation of um, ideas and traditions and culture and spiritual practices from other groups, and we take the, we take them and don't honor the group, don't know very much about it. We just kind of take it and mash it up with other stuff, and it gets all messy and strange and plastic. And then we go, ta-da! Look what we made. Mm-hmm. There's a very a, a, a kind of a rant in a, in a footnote in your book that really made me mm-hmm. sit up and take notice. You expressed really beautifully that the the kind of the wrongness of that kind of misappropriation of. Um, mm-hmm. something that has not only is the property of another group, but has deep meaning that has context, that is history that has, that really means something. And we just kind of go in and pluck it away. And that's not what you're about. No. And the, the, the thing to keep in mind is that um, most of the people who are appropriating are like me. They're primarily from a European you know, European-American or otherwise, you know, European background of some flavor. 
And, you know, at least in the U.S., you know, a lot of people just assume that our culture is, you know, McDonald's and strip malls. <laughs> and, yeah, that is part of it, but that's not all that there is. There's also, you know, John Muir and the National Park System. There's, you know, all the people who are working with all the many environmental groups today trying to reverse the damage on many different levels. There's, you know, every child who finds fascination in the natural world. There, there's a lot more going on than just strip malls. And so what I'm trying to do is rather than turn my back on the culture that I'm a part of, I'm trying to heal it. I'm trying to help it because it's what I know and it has such a huge influence on the rest of the world that if I can make it better, then maybe we can make our influence healthier and better, not just for other humans, but for other beings. Well, and I know the, the clock is catching us here. We're just about to go into the break. But you advocate along with that a, a kind of an, a very individual path to connection in this way that is tremendously empowering. It's not about taking anything away. It's about not it's about receiving and then adding to the tradition you're listening to out of the fog with karen hager my guest is lupa and her new book is nature spirituality from the ground up connect with to to totems oh my goodness connect with totems in your ecosystem when we come back after this short break i want to ask lupa how she got involved with totems some of her experience and we'll find out more about how you can connect with this world of totems we'll be right back after this Come to the forest. It's a place not so far away. A place where you don't have to mow the lawn or babysit. I saw lizards and squirrels and bugs. Ladybugs, caterpillars. It's really cool, actually. A place where you don't have to make time for free time. Lots and lots of kinds of species here. Out here, you may even meet the mysterious creature known as the other you. The enchanted you. It's magic what flowers do. The adventurous you. My favorite tree. Yes. It's that one. The free to be me you. <laughs> Ask your parents to take you to this not so far away place. Come to the forest where the other you lives. But first, stop by discovertheforest.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Hey, Larry, mind if I sit down? Nope. Oh, this coffee tastes like uh, coffee. So what's going on? Not much. What's new? Not much. Okay, but can you please put the newspaper down while you say not much? What newspaper? This newspaper. Oh, dude, what happened to your face? I see one, two, Ow. three, four, five, six. Ow. Dude, what is Ow. this? Eleven pieces of toilet paper stuck to your face? I'm shaving in the dark to save energy. I'm helping the environment. Well, that's a dangerous way to help the environment. Well, sometimes you have to sacrifice yourself for the greater good. Dude, there's an easier and safer way to help the environment without sacrificing yourself. Go green, go public. Take public transportation. It's good for the environment and you won't have to live behind a newspaper. Wow. But for now, put the newspaper back up. 
a message from the public transportation systems across the country. To learn more, visit publictransportation.org. I'm home, and I love it. I'm home, where I belong. I'm home, and I love it. I'm home, where I belong. It's always nice to come home. But these days, many Americans are at risk of foreclosure and losing their homes. Fortunately, help is available. Making Home Affordable is a free program from the U.S. government that has already helped over a million struggling homeowners, and we want to help you. I'm home. I'm home. And I love it. I'm home. I'm home. Find out now what your options are. Go to makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1-888-995-HOPE. The sooner you act, the better chance we can help you. I'm home. I'm home. Where I be. Brought to you by the U.S. Treasury, HUD, and the Ad Council. And now back to Out of the Fog with Karen Hager on Empower Radio. EmpowerRadio.com. Welcome back to Out of the Fog. I'm Karen Hager, and I'm talking with Lupa. Her new book is Nature Spirituality from the Ground Up, Connect with Totems in Your Ecosystem. You can find more about Lupa and her work at thegreenwolf.com. And of course, I welcome your comments, your feedback, your questions about what you're hearing today. What do you do in your life, whether you live maybe out in the middle of the wilderness or you live in the biggest city there is? What do you do to keep that natural connection going? How do you honor the spirits, the natural forces that are around you in your day-to-day living? That making the sacred of every day is part of what spirituality means. How do you do that? You can always reach me through my website, karenhager.com, or just go ahead and email me. Would you? I'm karen at karenhager.com. Lupa, we were just getting into totems before the break, and I was thinking about this while we were um, playing the commercials, and I, I wondered, do you feel like there are totems that have, I know you said that a totem isn't just one individual animal, not just one individual thing, but um, holds the energy for that for that collective group. Do we have personal relationships, though, with totems? Um, well, it's kind of like dealing with with other people. Um, you know, I there are some people who have, you know, totems or other spiritual beings that, you know, have watched over them from an early age and, you know, maybe they find out about later on in life, you know, one way or another. Um, but not everybody is like that. Not everybody has had that experience. Some people kind of need to go and, and make that, find that connection themselves. And there's, there's really no one right way to do that. Um, one of the things that I want to emphasize is that when I say, for example, my, my primary totem is gray wolf, um, that is shorthand for trying to describe a relationship that has lasted decades, that has had an incredibly in, uh, deep impact on my life and who I am as a person as uh, very formative. So it's like saying, you know, 
oh, here, this is my cousin. You know, and yeah, you can you can meet this person's cousin and you can get their name, but that's not the sum total of who that human being happens to be. They're not just so-and-so's cousin. There are a whole bunch of other things, too. So um, we can have certain animal, plant, et cetera, totems that, you know, have had a connection with us for a long, long time, and if, even if we didn't recognize it at first. And part of the, part of the, the, the big, you know, spiritual path that is totemism is discovering those totems uh, for yourself if, if they've been there. But it doesn't just have to be the ones that have been there from day one watching over you. You may not even have ones like that. Um, I've worked with many totems who, you know, I went to them and introduced myself and said, hey, you know, here I am. Let's talk. Um, you know, who are you and, and, you know, what, what, what interest do you have in the world and what, what might I learn from you? That kind of thing. So um, it's... Uh, it's it's a lot it's a lot more complicated than just going, oh my totem is gray wolf and this book says wolf means this and so that must mean what my totem is and I need to emulate it. There's there's a lot more to it than that. Does that make sense? It does, and it and it to me the way that you describe it as a kind of an ecosystem of its own, a kind of a um, a, a world beyond our world that reflects our physical world, but there's also more to it. Um, mm -hmm. it's an interesting where I'm, where I'm going with this. And I think what one, I'm not sure how well I'm going to form this, but I, so I'm a professional intuitive and I'm a spiritual teacher and I work with a set of guides who are my teachers and my mm -hmm. companions and my, but to me, when I read this book, what you're talking about with totems is something very different. You're talking about a different kind of being, um, and a being with a, a sort of a different, broader responsibility. Um, maybe mm -hmm. where we don't have as much, I hear you saying how Grey Wolf has had such a transformative uh, impact on your life. I'm mm -hmm. where I'm, why I asked you that question about the intimacy of the relationship is that with my guides, it's very intimate. It's very day to day. It's very kind of down to earth. And I feel like working with totems must be something um, other than that. I don't know. How did I do? Do you know what I'm getting at? It it can, it can be very personal and day-to-day. -day. Um, it really kind of depends on the totems. Like, you know, Grey Wolf is sort of a constant presence in my life at all times to the point where I just don't think about it anymore. It's, he's, he's there. Um, but there's there are the more sort of casual totemic relationships. Uh, the example I like to bring up is when I travel... Um, I usually call on domestic horse for protection while I travel because, you know, they travel long periods of time and, and, you know, they have to keep themselves safe during their own movements and migrations and so forth. And horse is one of those totems that has sort of agreed to, you know, watch over me during that travel time. Um, it doesn't mean that's all that horse does, but that's that's kind of the agreement that we have. 
Um, it's not as intimate or close as my time with, with Grey Wolf, but there's, there's still that connection and that work together. Um, I think one of the one of the things I want people to understand is that it's really what you make of it. It's like having different people in your life. You have, you know, significant others, you have friends, you have family, but then you have the person who bags your groceries and totems are kind of the same. You have some of the ones who are close to you, but then you have the ones who are just, you know, working with you in a fairly casual manner, maybe on one particular project or one particular uh, lesson, and then that's that's basically it. Does that make sense? It does. It does make sense. And you outline in the book kind of a, a three level, although it isn't. And you say it's not as neat as this, really, but kind of three levels of involvement of mm-hmm. totems in your life. Um, and it's and it's interesting because that that um, the way that you lay that out is a lot like the teaching that I give about spirit guides. Those three levels mm-hmm. of connection and awareness in your energy and how you work with them in your life. And you believe too that that the totem can move on, that when the connection is done or the time has passed, that sometimes a relationship with a totem may end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes you know if if a totem leaves your life, it doesn't mean that you failed. It doesn't mean you're a horrible person it may just mean that that particular connection or relationship is, is done and that's, that's okay. Um, one of the biggest things that I keep seeing both with, with totems and other nature spirits is when a lot of people write about them or, or talk about them, they act as though they only exist to serve us humans and to teach us humans. And in my experience, that's not the case. Gray Wolf's biggest priority is not teaching me. Gray Wolf's biggest priority is caring for uh, the physical wolves in this world and, you know, making sure there's still a place for them in this world. Um part of the reason that totems work with, with humans is because we're sort of the dominant species on the planet right now in that we have the biggest influence on, uh, you know, a lot of ecosystems, um, comparatively speaking. And so it kind of behooves them to connect with those of us who are willing to listen um, and let us know, hey, this is what they need. The problem is that even in our spirituality, we are so selfish. We are so anthropocentric. We're so human-centered that we often forget to ask, what do we give back? Um, a lot of the books are like, oh, empower yourself with totems and you know, bring your life to full fruition or whatever. You know, it's always about empowerment, empowerment, empowerment. And I don't see a lot about it being a reciprocal relationship. I do not work with the totems that I do so that I can get more out of the world. I do not do it just so that I can become more powerful or intelligent or, you know, healthy or whatever. I do it because I feel a deep connection with this world and 
I ask them to show me parts of the world that humans often don't understand or have forgotten about. And then I ask them, what can I do to serve this world? What can I do to undo some of the damage? What can I do to help the living beings and the ecosystems here? What can I do to lighten my own footprint here? Um, And yes, in the process, hopefully I become a better person. But for me, it's about rejoining that community of nature and being a responsible citizen in that community. Does that make sense? I think it's beautiful. There's a, I think there's an unfortunate trend, as you say, to things that are all about what can we get. Ooh, connect with the spirit world and get awesome prizes. And I lost 10 pounds by connecting with the spirit world. And mm-hmm, what you're tapping mm-hmm. into is a relationship that is about, is a relationship. It goes both ways. There is honor and respect that goes both ways. There are needs to be met on both sides. And I love that you tap into that. What are some of the ways in which you serve the totems who also serve you? Um, A lot of it is just being mindful of the impacts of the choices that I make on a daily basis. Um, I consider myself an environmentalist, um, but I don't just blindly accept whatever, you know, such and such organization says. Um, I really have thought about um, my decisions and why I've made those decisions, and I review them periodically. For example, I am an obligate omnivore. I cannot be vegetarian or vegan. Um, My body does not respond well to it. And I don't think the answer to all of the environmental problems caused by our, um, you know, current food growing and distribution system is for everybody to go vegan. It's, it's not realistic, and in a lot of ways, veganism is kind of a, a privileged choice to be able to make. Um, you know, how do you tell the Inuit up in, you know, Alaska and northern Canada where there's, you know, not really much time for agriculture? How do you tell them to be, you know, vegan, for example? Anyway, so being that I'm an obligate omnivore, How do I reduce my impact? Well, I try to buy locally sourced meat and seafood when I'm able to afford it. I have a garden and I I grow as much of my food as I can. And I try to reduce my food waste. And in doing these things and in not just blindly accepting, oh, yes, veganism is the way to go or all organic is the way to go, um... I look at the deeper issues, not just for myself, but for others. Um, one of my biggest uh, concerns is availability of good, healthy food, regardless of whether it's animal or plant or fungus-based, um, to people who may not have a lot of money. You know, the, there's a concept of, well, it's not a concept, it's a thing. It's, it's, it's a food desert. And it's basically an area, particularly in deep urban areas, but also in some rural areas, um, where there's not 
a grocery store within easy access. Um, either, you know, if you don't have a car, you can't get to it. It might take you two or three bus transfers to get to it. It can take you hours just to go get your groceries. And when there's a convenience store right across the street from you, you know, yeah, maybe it all has is junk food and processed food, but you know, that's going to be easier for you to get to, especially if you're working two jobs to, you know, get money to cut, keep a roof over your head and, and to feed your kids. So I look at all of these issues. I look at, you know, when I'm thinking of my own diet, I'm looking at, okay, yeah, I can eat organic and go to farmer's markets because I live in an area where those are easy to get to. But how do we make those things accessible to other people? And how do we make the distribution of food more egalitarian so that food's not getting wasted and that the people who need it can get it and thereby reduce the impact on the farmland so that we're not growing food we don't need and therefore destroying wilderness to make farmland that we don't need. It's, 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 it's all interconnected. Mm-hmm. So when I say service to the totems, yeah, there's some direct stuff like, you know, donating time and money to environmental groups that benefit, you know, ecosystems. But there's also thinking about the bigger implications of all of my choices. And food is a really good example because it's something that affects everybody. Everybody's got to eat. And right there we have kind of in a, in, in one example, a way of starting from that place of disconnection, connecting through the totems as a bridge to a kind of a deeper understanding. And then, whoa, all of a sudden we're looking at the community garden. We're looking at how do we supply food for people in need? How is it not that I can live this life this way, this kind of connection, but what possibilities can I open for other people to be connected to? And that's exactly wonderful. How, here's the big question. How can listeners begin to invite or connect with their totem? Are they all going to have one? Do I have one? Does everybody have one? Um, and that's the big question everybody wants to know. How do I find my totem? Um, I don't think everybody has a totem or totems that, you know, are with them all the time, et cetera, et cetera. Some people do, some people don't. Some people may find themselves trying to connect to totems again and again and again, and it just doesn't work. And, you know, they may think there's something wrong with them. And it's really not. The totems may just not feel that they're ready to work with them. They may feel that a different sort of being like, you know, angels or fae beings or whatever might be a better fit, you know, or maybe they need to instead, they've been trying to talk to animals and maybe they need to be talking to plants or minerals instead. You know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a lot of personal uh, exploration and discovery that goes into this um, whole, you know, do I, you know, what's my totem thing? As far as the actual method of identifying totems, um, I admit I have a lot of bias here just by the way that I develop my own practice. Um, and a lot of it is because my practice is based very much in everyday nature. Um, I'm going to talk about a couple methods that I don't recommend and why. And I'm going to talk about my favorite method. And uh, listeners are welcome to, you know, get their salt shaker 
and take with the take this with a grain of salt as they see fit. So um, people ask me, oh, I saw such and such animal when I was outside, and you know it must have meant it was my totem. A good example is. I saw a red-tailed hawk when I was driving to work today, and I see this hawk every day and have for the last two weeks. Does that mean it's my totem? Well, not necessarily. Look at the behavior of the animal. Red-tailed hawks and other raptors tend to be territorial. And, yeah, you'll see them during the day because, you know, other than owls, raptors are diurnal hunters. So you're going to see them up on high perchy places as they're looking for food. So it's likely that you're driving through this particular hawk's territory. You might even see two of them because they're paired up. Um, Again, we're so self-centered that we forget that animals have their own lives outside of us. So do plants. So do fungi. And for the most part, they couldn't care less what we're doing or where we're going. So if a hawk flies across the road or if you happen to see a snake or whatever, just be happy that you're in a place that has some, uh, you know, some wildlife, some creatures to, to, to see. You know, if you find yourself being happy about the trees around you, you know, be glad that, you know, you live in a place that still has trees, you know, but it doesn't have to be all about you. So. If you feel very strongly that there's something more to it, then you can go directly to the source. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but, yes, yeah, so that's my thought on, on animal sightings. The same thing goes for animals and plants and so forth and dreams. For the most part, our dreams are just our brain's way of organizing things that have happened throughout the day. And, you know the different levels of our mind use different sorts of communication. Our conscious mind likes to use words. Our unconscious mind likes to use images. And sometimes something gets lost in the translation. So you don't have to necessarily take things that you get in your dreams at face value. So if you see a horse in your dream, it doesn't necessarily mean that horse is your totem. It might just mean that that horse represents something to you. If you liked horses when you were a kid, you know, you went riding and stuff and you dream about horses, it might just mean, it might just represent something good in your life right now. Mm -hmm. Um, The third method that I want to talk about that I'm not really crazy about is totem cards. It's a deck of cards, anywhere from like 40 to 80 cards. Each one has an animal on it, sometimes plants too. And the, the basic idea is, okay, you shuffle this deck, you draw a few cards, those are supposedly your totems. Well, what if your totems are animals or plants or so forth that aren't in that deck? There's only so many beings that you can fit in one deck. There's only so many cards. Um, You know, what if your totem happens to be springbok and the closest thing in your deck is white-tailed deer? So you see the limitation with that. Yeah. So the method that I use is guided meditation. And I don't mean those strictly scripted uh, meditations where every single thing down to what the being you're visiting in the meditation says. You know, it's not like, you know, I go into the tunnel and I step out of the tunnel and uh, Cottontail Rabbit is waiting for me and says this to me and then says that to me and then, 
you know, gives me some clover and then we say goodbye. And it's, it's not that strict. But what it is, is you visualize going into a tunnel in the ground and you come out. And when you come out, you find yourself in a natural place. And in that natural place, if things go well, you'll find at least one of your totems and you have a conversation with them and you let that conversation be whatever it's going to be. And you can always come back to that place and use it as a sort of meeting ground where you can talk further with that totem and keep developing that, that conversation and that relationship. Um, does that make sense? It does. And I know the clock has catched us again. And I, I want to be sure, can you let the listeners know, Lupa, how they can find out more about you? You've written a blue million books. You are mm-hmm. an artist. You have, mm-hmm. there's so much. How can listeners find out more about you and connect with you? Uh, the best thing is to go to my website, uh, thegreenwolf.com. Don't forget the the. It's not Green Wolf. It's the Green Wolf. And that's basically the hub for all things Lupa. So there's information on my books. There's information on my artwork. There's links to some of my other sites and projects. There's links to my social media. There's, you know, email if you want to ask me questions. And um, that's, that's basically the best place to get a start on stuff. And if you have questions or you know, you're interested in finding out more about any of this, I love email. I love chatting with people. It might take me a few days if I'm busy but you're welcome to uh, get in touch with me. Well, in this book, Nature Spirituality from the Ground Up has um, guided meditations in it. There are rituals Mm -hmm. in it. There are practical exercises. There's all kinds of people who listen to the show know that I love the books that are practical where I can really like do the stuff in the book. This is a wonderful Mm -hmm. book. If you want to go deeper, if you want to know more, pick up that book, Nature Spirituality from from the ground up. I'm very curious with just about a minute to go, though, I'm really curious about the bone tarot. And I wonder if you can just quickly say a little about that and what we can expect. Yeah, um, the tarot of bones is a tarot, uh, tarot deck and book set that I'm producing. I'm going to be releasing it uh, self published later this summer. Uh, Basically, I created 78 permanent assemblage artworks, one for each of the tarot cards using bones and other natural materials. And uh, we're currently in the photography process of getting those uh, artworks put together, taking photos of the assemblages. And you can find out more about that project and my progress with it at thetarotofbones.com. That is, that is fascinating. Lupa, thank you so much for being on the show. It was really interesting to talk to you. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed it and uh, really appreciate speaking with you. Thank you so much. That is Lupa. Her latest book is Nature Spirituality from the Ground Up. Connect with totems in your ecosystem. You can find out more about Lupa and her work at thegreenwolf.com. If you're interested in more information about the Tarot of Bones, which is upcoming, go to tarotofbones.com. And of course, you know how to find me. Find out about private sessions and classes and events and all kinds of stuff. I'll be back teaching on the West Coast this summer. All that information now is up for you at Karen Hager. 
If you believe, as I do, that collective intention is one of the best ways to turn the tide, that when we get together and put our energy on peace, put our focus on love and opening, that we can make a difference in the world, you'll want to check out openpeacefulheart.com. That's a site where you can sign up for monthly free group meditations designed to help us come together, just 15 minutes, coming together in guided meditation to make a difference in the world. Find out more at openpeacefulheart.com. And thank you for listening today. Together we are spreading a little more light in the world, and a little more light is always a good thing. Until next time, I'm wishing you peace. Peace.